If you've got a Bible with you, you might like to turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, and Ben's going to come and uh, help me with this reading. And we're reading from Nehemiah chapter 4, starting at verse 1. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of the associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, For the people worked with all their hearts. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the men of Ashod heard that the repairs to the Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the labourers is giving out. There's so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see it, we will be right there among them, and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack you. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armour. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah, who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked that the man who sounded the horn, the trumpet, stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and work men by day. 
Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took up our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. This morning to our, our series on Nehemiah, just another brick in the wall. And uh, just to recap on, uh, on where we've been. Uh, we began in chapter 1 with Nehemiah uh, receiving the vision. And uh, we said that a vision begins as a concern. He heard of the, the state of the walls uh, in Jerusalem when the visitors came and told him. It began as a concern. Uh, a vision is born out of prayer straight away, Nehemiah. For days, it said, uh, prayed about this. And we said that a vision does not always require immediate action. Nehemiah did nothing for quite a while. Then uh, last week, we saw how Nehemiah went about releasing the vision. And uh, he was inspecting the walls. And we spoke about how Peter and I had also been inspecting our walls uh, around the church here at Lom. And uh, we said that releasing the vision, it was important getting the timing right. It was important getting the telling right. And it was important getting the glory right. And this week, uh, you may have noticed, if you, those of you who have been very observant will notice that we've missed out uh, chapter 3 of Nehemiah. In chapter 3, I'll just fill you in on, on the details. In chapter 3, um, the rebuilding of the walls begins and there's long lists of the names of the people. Uh, you'll be glad that I didn't give you that reading to read out this morning, uh, Ben. There's long lists of the people and the families uh, that were taking part in the rebuilding of the wall. And we're joining the story in chapter 4. And uh, we see in chapter 4 uh, that Nehemiah is recognising the opposition. In chapter 4, Nehemiah is recognising the opposition. A husband and wife were riding a bicycle built for two and they came to uh, a rather steep hill. It took a great deal of struggle uh, for the couple to complete what proved to be a very stiff climb. And when they got to the top, the husband in front turned and said to the wife, that was sure a hard climb. The wife replied, yes, and if I hadn't kept the brakes on all the way, we would certainly have rolled backwards. <laughs> Recognising the opposition. Not suggesting that the wife is the opposition, of course, but uh, uh, it's important that we recognise uh, the opposition. And uh, the first thing that I want to say this morning is that opposition is inevitable. Opposition is inevitable. Anybody here ever done anything and they felt that people were opposed to what they were doing? Anybody had that experience? You've done something? One or two people have. Uh, maybe some of you at this moment in time are experiencing opposition in one way or another. Um, Rob Warner in his book, uh, The 21st Century Church, says this, I've not met a single leader who has sought to bring renewal in an existing church without facing some measure of real and painful opposition. So opposition is inevitable. We shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition. Very often that's the experience, isn't it? We're surprised uh, when we face opposition. It comes as a shock to us. Why would anybody be opposed to the ideas that I have for the church? 
unimaginable that anybody would be opposed. But uh, opposition is inevitable. And we know this from the stories in the Bible. Uh, We know that Moses and David and Joseph all faced opposition to what God had called them to do. Uh, In the New Testament, it's even more obvious. Uh, Peter and Paul were thrown into prison. Uh, John the Baptist was beheaded. And of course, Jesus faced opposition throughout his ministry. He even said, uh, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. In Matthew chapter 5. And of course the reality is we don't feel blessed when we are experiencing opposition. Uh, It doesn't feel like we're in a place where we're being blessed. This is uh, Sambalat. Uh, we, uh, we met these two characters uh, in chapter 2, you might recall. Uh, we met Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Amorite. They were the officials and when they heard about uh, the fact that uh, Nehemiah was coming back to uh, rebuild the walls, they were very disturbed, we read in chapter 2. Well, in chapter 4, they're not disturbed, they're angry. When Sabalat heard that they were rebuilding the walls, he became angry and was greatly incensed. And sometimes the reality is, uh, even in church, people can become very angry. I can remember one situation, uh, not long before the service started, when a, a very respected member of the church uh, came up to me and his face was red. Uh, you could see by his, his manner, he was very agitated. And he screamed at me that if I ever rearranged the, chair, the chairs in the church again, he was quitting because it was a health and safety issue. Uh, I'd, I'd simply rearrange the chairs in a, in a different uh, uh, way that they would normally be. And uh, this man was very, very angry. Uh, he was opposed to the chairs being moved. Um, I guess if I rearrange the church here, uh, chairs here, I might uh, get a similar reaction from some people. We like things the way they are, don't we, most of the time. We don't like anybody who comes along and changes things. Well, vision is all about changing. Uh, And whenever we, we try and change things, whenever we try and do new things, we will face opposition. And here we see uh, who the opposition is. It's, uh, it's Sambalat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonites. But very often, as in Jesus' ministry, the opposition is a little bit closer to home. Uh, throughout Jesus' uh, mission, uh, the challenging thing was the people that were opposed to Jesus, what he was doing, were really on the same side. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we think them as the bad guys, but they were the Jewish, respectable Jewish leaders and teachers of their day. They were on the same team. Jesus was a a Jewish rabbi and a teacher. And the opposition came from teachers and rabbis. The opposition to Jesus' ministry came even closer. It came from within the twelve. He had to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan, at one stage. When Peter was opposed to Jesus' idea of what God wanted him to do. And of course, uh, we know that Judas was the one that betrayed him with a kiss. Opposition is close to home. And it's even more painful when those we regard as our friends and part of our family are opposed to what we are doing. So, opposition is inevitable. 
Um, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble? Um, these were not encouraging words that they were bringing to the workers at the critical halfway stage of the building process, just as people were starting to feel uh, weak and tired out because the building work had been going on for quite some time. Um, Dave Cave, great name. Imagine if you were Mr. and Mrs. Cave. Would you call your son Dave? Well, obviously somebody did. And uh, Dave Cave says this. Uh, it should come talking about the opposition that Jesus faced. It should come as no surprise when we meet the same kind of reaction. Jesus warned his disciples that opposition and persecution would come and offered hope through perseverance. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So, opposition is inevitable. But notice Nehemiah's response to the opposition. And this is how we should respond when people are opposed to you. Prayer is indispensable. Prayer is indispensable. Nehemiah says, But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. The temptation when we're faced with opposition is to try and justify our position, to try and defend our position, to try and argue with the person or even retaliate with the same kind of words. Nehemiah takes his concerns about the opposition straight to God. It's interesting if we look at his prayer. Uh, It's not the kindest prayer, is it? Turn their insults back on their own heads. And uh, he goes on to say, um, Give them over to a plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Nehemiah isn't praying for the well-being of these people. Uh, But he is giving his frustration and maybe his anger over to God. And the thing about Nehemiah, we saw it in in the first two uh, chapters, Nehemiah's immediate response to any situation was to pray. We'll see it throughout um, the book of Nehemiah, that it's his first reaction is to turn to God and offer whatever it is, whether it's the news of the the walls uh, being in ruin, or whether it's people opposing what he's doing, straight away he turns to his God and he offers it to him. And we can do that. Uh, we can pray in our house group. We've been, uh, you know, working through the book of Jonah recently. And it's interesting uh, in chapter 4, you know, when uh, when Jonah's been and preached and the Ninevites and they all repent and Jonah's not very happy, he gets very angry. But what he does is he, he tells God about his anger. And uh, it's okay to tell God exactly how we feel. God can handle it. However we are, whether we're angry, whether we're happy, whether we're frustrated, whether we're sad, whatever it is, we can go to God because prayer is indispensable. And then we see that uh, discouragement is understandable. Discouragement is understandable. These people have been working hard at the halfway point. And uh, these nasty people are coming. And not only are they criticizing and undermining what they're doing, there is that threat that they will come and attack them. Discouragement 
is understandable. Discouragement is understandable. The strength of the labors is giving out and there's so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. Whenever we're facing opposition, um, the, you come to that stage when you, you, you're doing something where you wonder, you know, was it worth it? Uh, maybe you've started to do something and, uh, and halfway through you, you start to think, I wish I'd never started this project because it's caused me nothing but trouble and aggro. I'd have been better off just sitting quietly and doing nothing. And uh, all you need is one or two people to come in and say, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't have started it. And uh, it wasn't a good idea. And uh, discouragement is so easy, isn't it? And uh, again, we need to be careful because very often uh, discouragement, it doesn't come from outside of the church. You know, people outside of the church, they don't really care what we do in church. They're not, they're not opposed to what we're doing. They're not outside with placards saying, you know, shut down Long Baptist Church. Uh, they're quite blasé. The opposition and the discouragement will come from within. People will come with a, a negative word when you've been trying to do something. You might have done a, a job in the church and somebody comes and criticizes you because you've not done it quite as, as they would have done it. Or you've, you've been doing something with the children and the children have been too loud. And, and although we don't mean it, it's so easy, isn't it, to knock people down. And sometimes a discouraging word just at the right moment can be the final straw that makes people want to give up. So discouragement is, it's understandable. It's understandable. Uh, these people were fatigued, they'd lost their strength, uh, they were frustrated uh, there was the accusation that the, that the, the, the rebuilding would fail and uh, the frustration had set in and at the end they say, we cannot rebuild the wall, it's too big a job. Uh, maybe they think, we wish we'd never started, we wish Nehemiah had stayed uh, as a cup holder uh, serving the king. So discouragement is understandable. It's understandable when get people get discouraged. Uh, you know, teachers, those in the teaching professions, they get to the end of the term, you know, they're probably just waiting to get to that final day when they can just collapse and, uh, you know, take time off. It's easy to get discouraged. And then, Nehemiah's response to discouragement is to try and bring people together. Unity is desirable. Unity is desirable. Uh, Nehemiah... Uh, makes arrangements and he says from that day on half the men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears there was a unity in what they were doing there was a plan uh, they were going to be prepared in case of attack and it's interesting uh, when we think about church unity because we'd all agree that it's desirable uh, that we get on and that we work together uh, you know, Kate has very helpfully brought in the idea of the we. You know, we are in this together. Uh, we are the church. Um, but the, the, the difficulty is very often people think uh, unity is about us all agreeing all the time. Uh, last month at the Cafe Church, we did this thing on agreeing to disagree. And we talked about the fact that it's okay to disagree. We're not always going to be in agreement. That doesn't mean we can't be in unity. That doesn't mean we can't work together because we don't always agree at the same time. You know, if I've got a free Saturday, I might say to the girls, what should we do? To my wife and two children. I might say, should we go on a, a five-mile walk out into the country? And they might say, we'd rather go shopping. Um, now, we could solve the problem by doing nothing at all. 
Um, or we could sit down and have a discussion and a debate and talk about it and talk about our differences. And we'll probably come to the conclusion that I can walk while they're shopping, but they can't shop, shop while I'm walking, so we'll go shopping. But, but we come to a, 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 an agreement and we don't all agree, but we don't do nothing. You see, in the church, the danger is, is that, you know, we talk about things and because we can't agree, we don't do anything. Uh, to be united together doesn't mean that we will always agree. In fact, there is a, a healthy um, thing about disagreement, about challenging what people say and thinking about it and thinking things through and hearing different opinions and different people's stories and experiences all come together. So unity is desirable. We're in this together. Unity is desirable. And then... We see that sacrifice is inescapable. Sacrifice is inescapable. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to belong to the church, uh, we can't do that without sacrifice. In the Western world, I don't think we really understand sacrifice. Uh, Jesus didn't hide away from his followers what it meant to follow him. But in the conditions and the world that we live in, most of the time, let's be honest, it's quite pleasant, isn't it? If we were to live in, in the third world, you know, death and suffering and just hard work to survive would be part of the everyday life. It wouldn't be seen as a, as a huge intrusion into our nice world. It would just be part of everyday life. When we suffer, we, we say to God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? As if God should always protect us and not allow anything bad to happen to us. Jesus, when he called his disciples to follow him, he talked about taking up his cross and following him. And of course, cross was a means of execution. He didn't say following me is going to be easy. He didn't say following me is going to be comfortable. He didn't say following me is going to be without opposition and trouble. In fact, he warned his disciples that that's exactly what it would involve. But in our time and and our way of being church, we do see these things as an intrusion. Sacrifice is inescapable. Uh, The people had to work day and night, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. And he goes on to point out that uh, neither I nor my brothers nor the men nor the guards with me took off our clothes, each had his weapon, even when he went for water. Rebuilding this wall was going to be hard work and it was going to be costly and would involve sacrifice. And as a church... If we are going to get behind the vision that God is giving us for this church, it will be costly. It will involve sacrifice. It will involve hard work. Sacrifice is inescapable if we are going to do what God wants us to do. And then finally, God is unbeatable. Nehemiah not only prays to God, his confidence is in God. The vision has come from God And he's absolutely sure that where God has guided, that God will provide. He says to the uh, disturbed and failing Israelites, he says, Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. 
whenever a vision is birthed, um, if it's a vision from God, then God will be with us. And God will fight for us. If it's God, God's idea, then eventually it will work, however hard that is. If it's just our ideas, they might well fall by the wellside. But God is unbeatable. God will win the victory for us. And Nehemiah is absolutely confident, although the opposition is real and scary and fierce, he puts his trust and faith in the God that birthed this vision in Nehemiah's heart when he was a cupbearer in the king's palace. There are going to be times when, you know, you're tempted to dwell on past failures. There's going to be times when you're tempted to focus on financial statements and obstacles. There will be fears about the future. It's easy to slip into focusing on the opposition, the critics. But it's much better to do what Nehemiah did and focus on God. And give our concerns to God and look to God to give us the victory.